I did have like 200 land flips for the past three years. And I did a study. I ranked everything by the amount of absolute profit per deal. The top 100 deals were 81% of our profits. So what I determined out of all of that is to stay away from the small. But one of the things I think is a big opportunity in the land space is renewable energy side of things, developing solar farms, wind farms, things like that. I mean, there's a big push to take our electricity grid from fossil fuel to renewable energy by 2035. You don't have to learn how to do everything yourself. You just need to know who can do it. So who can you plug in that can do that for you? Well, you are in the land flipping business, and I believe that Life and the pursuit of success and happiness and everything in between when it's all said and done, or at least to speak on my experiences as I've reflected in my 29 years of living, uh, which is maybe not a reflection of the experiences I've gone through, right? Um, but in short, I believe that life is like information, land, and law, right? Like we're trying to accumulate high quality information to accumulate land and do things by law. Uh, and or law can influence information and influence who owns the land. So uh, for you coming on the show here, I'm excited to dive into your business ventures. Uh, a lot of people think that, as you were saying before we went live, people view real estate and view uh, you know land as like a, a long-term investment, which sure, it's arguably the, the most proven uh, as far as assets. Obviously, nothing we discuss is financial tax legal advice, as always. But yeah, I'm just excited for you to share your business model, a little bit of your story on the land flipping business. And uh, we'll leave the politics aside as far as where you're at in the San Diego and California. Maybe that'll be episode two together. How about that? That sounds good. Sounds good to me. Cool, Pete. Well, let's discuss how you got into the business. How did you get into, into land flipping and, and what are you doing that uh, would maybe catch people by surprise in terms of the opportunity of uh, land flipping and, and how people can maybe get started if they're listening. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I probably should re rewind a little bit. I started kind of my real estate journey back in the early 2000s when we bought our first home. We bought it FHA financing, three and a half percent down. And even in San Diego here, the price was 195000 at the time. So we got into our first house and that, you know, that doesn't exist <laughs> these days with the pricing and everything, but um, did some renovations on the home ourselves. Myself, meaning, um, you know, some real shoddy work <laughs> in hindsight, but I tried my best at the time. And uh, we ended up, you know, two years later, we ended up selling that property for a really good profit. And I thought I was like a real estate mogul. And then we bought another house that needed some work and did the same thing to it. All the while, the market was improving and appreciating. I was doing work on properties, uh, property myself, and we sold that property for a good profit. Then we started flipping homes. It, even at that time. And that was a great business for a while until the real estate market crashed here in 2008, um, as it did many places. But, you know, I'd gotten my real estate broker license before that in about 2006, even because to get better access to deals, you know, find MLS listed deals. That's how I was getting all my deals at the time, show myself homes, write the offers myself and all that kind of stuff. But the license ended up being great because when the market crashed, it gave me a way to earn an income when no one else in real estate was was doing well, pretty much. So then I just focused on listing bank-owned properties for the banks. And that was a whole time period, a crazy time, really. Um, you know, I was a representative for the bank, so I was not, I would get to sign these, these listings. And then my first 
job was to determine if the home was vac- vacant, go knock on the door and have a conversation with people. And sometimes they didn't even know that their home had been. And I was, I was there, you know, like the representative of the, of the bank. And it was just, you know, it was a, it was a crazy time. I, d- I didn't like doing that at all. Um, but it taught me a lot about, about life, I guess you could say. And, uh, and it also got me a lot of good connections with larger real estate investment companies and things. And for a while there, I was just finding them deals, you know, um, I was, I kind of got out of real estate investing myself altogether at that time because, you know, flipping homes really wasn't happening because there were no end buyers or financing. It was a crazy time. Um, so I, you know, I, d- I went through a number of different, I guess, business models within being a real estate broker, I did luxury homes for a while. I did short sales. I did a number of different things. Was building a team for a while. I got out of real estate altogether. Kind of worked my, with my wife on an education business um, within, um, you know, related to what she was doing. She had a um, she had a blog and travel blog, and she would always have people asking her, "Hey, how do I do this? How do we travel as much as you guys do, and, and get it comped and all that kind of stuff?" So. Uh, we, you know, started a whole business uh, related to that for, you know, it was, it was years. It was really, um, really a great business. And that was kind of my full focus, her full focus. And then, you know, COVID hit and everything. And then there weren't people traveling as much. So we were like, okay, time to shift a little bit. I really, real estate had always been my passion, real estate investing specifically. So I was just looking around for other business models that might fit kind of with my skill set and everything. Just reading a bunch online, you know, I knew I didn't really want to get back into flipping homes because I knew how difficult that was and all the challenges that came with it. I didn't really like some of the other models for various reasons, you know, longer term things, you know, like it took um, too long to get paid on some of these things. So I was looking for something where there was a, you know, a shorter term cash flow component to it. And then I stumbled into some people talking about land flipping. And it just kind of made sense to me. I saw some guy make a comment about like, hey, I bought this piece of land for $10,000 and I sold it for $30,000 30 days later. I was like, well, that sounds great. I'd love to be able to triple my money in 30 days. And uh, it just sent me down a whole rabbit hole. I bought a course on it and I just kind of dove all in. That's kind of what I'm all about. I went for it and I just started, uh, started doing it my first year in 2021. We resold our first land flip in March of 2021. And, and we did about 1.2 million and some change in, in revenue and about almost 50% gross profit margin that year. Uh, year two did about 3.5 uh, million in revenue, and then uh, which was 2022. And then year three was uh, 2023. We just wrapped up and that was uh, over 8.2 million in revenue and uh, almost $3 million in gross profit. So we're accelerating rapidly. I wanted to do 20 million this year. So, flip, so wow. that's where I'm at working on building a whole, you know, team of superstar people out to kind of help me with every aspect of it and, you know, transform it from just a operation where it's just centered around me to, to a whole big team kind of, uh, you know, professionalize the business and everything like that. So that's what we've been working on. Lately. That's awesome, man. And congrats. That's huge growth. Uh, especially going from 1.2 million 3.5, 8.2, and you're looking to more than double that again. So being in San Diego, I'm sure it can help with the, the stresses of building the team and scaling the business ventures. So uh, great, great place to be. Now, as far as your strategy, uh, because 
most people, correct me if I'm wrong, they're buying land in real estate to, you know, maybe hold or they're buying land to build a house on it. They're buying land for maybe farming, more of, again, like a longer term strategy. Whereas for you, in a sense, it's like you're, you're wholesaling land, right? Like you're buying it for a discounted price in terms of the market value and you're looking to get rid of it in terms of selling it rapidly, right? So looking to two, three, four X as quickly as possible. What exactly is a, when it comes to buying real estate for property that needs fixed, it's usually, you know, 75% of the ARV minus any rehab costs and any additional expense that you may have with financing, raising private money, et cetera. As far as finding a good deal and land and purchasing land, what is considered like a good deal? And, uh, and that will like kind of check your buy box. Yeah. Well, um, you're, you're right. First of all, I thought the same thing about land. I thought it was just like, it didn't appeal to me at all before. I knew nothing about it before I went down this route. I thought, you know, you just buy big pieces of land in the path of progress and the city gradually gets bigger. And then one day this land is worth more than, you know, when you bought it for, and it's 20 years down the road, you can cash out, and, you know, make a huge payday. Uh, while, while that sounds fun, you know, how are you going to make money on it in the meantime? So that's why this business appealed to me because it's short-term holds, like you said. I mean, we're, we're on average, we're selling these properties within 90 days and sometimes a lot quicker and, you know, sometimes a little longer too, um, but uh, not, not if I can, not if I can help it. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, like um, kind of a really good benchmark that we try to hit is we're trying to double our money in all of our deals. So for instance, if I buy a property for 50,000, I'm trying to sell it for a hundred thousand. Now, after the there's closing costs and commissions and all that kind of stuff. I don't really double my money in a lot of cases, but still making a really good return on my money. But when I'm just looking at a deal, when I'm trying to kind of eyeball it and try to determine whether it's a deal I want to do or not, I'm looking at, you know, what I'm buying it for, obviously. And then if I can hit double that on a resale price, then, uh, then I'll do it. And, and it's, it's not just a, a retail price. You know, when I'm talking about that, that resale price, like that hundred grand, I'm looking at a price that's going to get me a contract within 30 to 60 days, you know, when we put it on the market. So, um, and that's kind of the key. One of the keys is business model. We're not pricing things at retail values. We are pricing things slightly below retail values, depending on how hot the market is. Uh, we have to adjust depending on the market, but we're pricing things aggressively in a lot of cases. So we find a buyer quickly. So, and that's, um, that's a big part of our strategy. Just what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started in the business of land flipping? Well, one of the big things I just recently, you know, kind of made a discovery on this. I mean, I knew it in the back of my head, but I really never thought deeply enough about it was the fact that when I'm the bigger deals are where it's at. You know, I did a study. I did have like 200 land flips for the past three years. And I did a study. I ranked everything by the amount of absolute profit per deal. Uh, and you know, I just ranked it all, you know, and I wanted to see if that Pareto principle, you know, the 80, 20 rule kind of held fast for that. And while it, while it didn't, uh, it was still clear. It was still very significant. The top 100 deals were 81% of our profits, which meant the bottom 100 deals, like a hundred deals, um, were only 18% of our profits. So I just look at that whole list of those hundred deals and I can see everything that we went through and all the, all the stuff that went in with involved with buying and selling all those properties. And like, and that was only 18% of our profits is kind of discouraging, but what it allowed me to do is to take a look at 
you know, those top 100, the top 50 deals and everything like that. What do they have in common? What, what things uh, about those deals are things that we can repeat, target those types of properties and continually improve our profitability. So what I determined out of all that is to stay away from the small. You know, it can be very intoxicating to, to buy a property for 5,000 and sell it for 20,000, right? I mean, that's who wouldn't want to do that, right? But in as far as, you know, you're quadrupling your money. But what, what happens is that you kind of get bogged down in those smaller deals and uh, the absolute profit is just not, not there, you know, to, you know, we've got an infrastructure of a team and we've got all overhead and things like that. By the time you're going through all these um, steps of the process and everything like that, then it, um, it really bought you down when instead I could have focused on deals that were making me 30, 40, you know, $50,000 per pop. And it's just, you know, it just, uh, it gets you ahead much quicker than, than focusing 50. And the problem is, you know, you might look at a $5,000 deal and say, okay, I can sell this for 20, but in reality, you know, you might not get that. It might end up being, you know, 14, $15,000 in commissions and closing costs and everything. And then by the end of the day, you're making, you know, like three or $4,000 in this deal that was probably harder to do than the deal that was, you know, you made a hundred thousand. Uh, so it's just, it, it's weird how that works, but there's smaller deals, you know, I'm staying away from them in the future. Yeah. And what's the difference between, at least for you, like a, a smaller deal versus like, what's a, a bigger deal? Because what you said is super key in terms of the 80, 20 rule, like, uh, wait, we're spending 80% of our time on 20% of our profit Yeah, in reality it needs to be ideally the opposite, right? Where you're spending yeah. more of your time on more of your profit. Right. Uh, whereas those small deals, like you got to work with title companies, the buyer backs out. If you're raising capital, working with, you know, that whole process, whatever the case may be, more emails, more phone calls, more stresses, more potential legal expense for contract, whatever it may be, like there's 900 things that can happen. Uh, and that's, that's essentially what you're saying. Then you got to hire team members, you got to train them, maybe one of them leave because they didn't get the commission check they needed. So then you got to get the deal back in contract, like the list goes on, uh, as I'm sure as you're smiling there, you, you understand more than anyone here, but as far as a big deal versus a small deal, uh, what what does that mean in terms of like numbers? Yeah, so, uh, you know, a small deal, I would consider anything, you know, anything under thirty, forty thousand dollars purchase price at this point. You know, and I've I've leveled up over time. You know, at the beginning, I was happy to take the five thousand dollars purchase and sell it for twenty thousand. That was, you know, and I still it's I still would pain me to say no to it because I know it's you know it's if it's obvious to me that we I could do that but but uh, a bigger deal like the biggest deal I've done was um we bought it for 450 sold it for 979 and we only owned it for like 30 days so that was a was a really good deal so and who who's usually buying these deals in terms of I'm sure it's a different buyer as far as like a $20,000 purchase versus a Nine hundred thousand or a seven-figure deal, correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like that bigger deal I mentioned, it was just a um, person that was local to the area looking for a larger ranch. They already owned some properties in that area, and it just kind of, you know, it just kind of coincided. And you know, we get a lot of those buyers that are just, you know, we do a lot of rural properties, so that's what a lot of the properties I end up doing are just kind of meshes with with what makes sense to me. 
But uh, yeah, so we get, you know, people that under are in a particular area, there are already property owners there. They may own lots of properties and they just kind of accumulate them. Other potential buyers are people that are kind of looking to get out of the city, looking to potentially get some land for recreation or a potential home site in the future, or maybe a potential home site right now. Maybe they'll put a manufactured home on it or something and, uh, you know, just kind of get away from, you know, the towns or some of the cities where they're at right now. There's a lot of things happening, I think, big picture stuff availability of internet access in some of these rural areas, more opportunities to work from home. And uh, I think I think there's just a lot more opportunities for those people that want to, that it's appealing to them to live kind of away from, a little more away from civilization to, uh, to actually run their lives and do it efficiently and make money from anywhere. So I think it's, I think that's, that's kind of one of the reasons why you know, this rural land market has been so, so busy for us lately. Yeah. You make a great point. It's funny how technology is bringing people together that would have never been potentially connected like you and I right here right, right well, now on this podcast, but yet humans are still well, also in reverse of that, like we're becoming more disconnected in a sense from technology. So technology is connecting us more than ever online, but then in day-to-day life, it's disconnecting us, uh, which is, which is quite unique to be living through this era. But in terms of investing, there's an idea around follow the money, right? Follow the money in terms of where's big capital coming in from institutional? Where's big capital coming in? What are billionaires doing, right? How are big investment firms investing? And a lot of hedge funds, a lot of people know BlackRock that's buying up single family property. And the American dream is becoming more of a nightmare than a dream. That said, we're also seeing people that are very controversial, such as Bill Gates, that's buying up a ton of farmland. And I believe that you have to nail on the head as far as one of the biggest opportunities, if not the biggest opportunity in real estate. Again, I'm here in Columbus, Ohio. I'm biased, but I've said for a couple of years now, from 2020 to 2030, I would argue to say that Columbus, Ohio, Central Ohio will be the best real estate market if you look at it over the next 10 years, again, from 2020 to 2030, because of cost of living because of population income and uh, job growth, but yet it still had this unique component to it in terms of the location of where it's at in the Midwest. It avoids disasters for the most part in terms of like, you know, weather disasters, right? There's not like crazy earthquakes or tornadoes or tsunamis, right? We don't have the sun here either, but, uh, you know, we're working on that. They're working on changing the weather, I suppose. But the point I'm getting at here, Pete, is you have access to things, but yet people like to be tucked away as well, right? So it's a great place to raise a family, to live, to start a business. Do you think that the the rural areas or the areas that are outside of those like top 15 cities, you think those are the best areas to approach over the next, let's say, five years in terms of real estate? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a ton of opportunity there. You know, a lot of the a lot of the areas do really well for us are an hour to two outside of major metropolitan areas. And, you know, I it's just I guess I don't have any real inside knowledge aside from just connecting the dots and saying, you know, I think there's this, just this general trend for um, people to, you know, potentially want to like, like leave that, that big city atmosphere. Some people. And, um, 
you know, there's the technology is there for them to do it now. So I think it's appealing to some people and, and ultimately they may go that direction and decide they don't like it or whatever may catch and it may really resonate with them. So I think that people are different for sure. Um, but I do think that there's those areas that were almost unlivable in a way, if you wanted to, if you were still in your, your earning income years, you know, I think those are, you know, fair game now for people, you know, they can still earn a living and great living online doing whatever they want to do, um, from wherever. So I think that's, I think that's a key aspect. Yeah. That's a good point you bring up is like the ability to, there's an area here in Ohio, Hawking Hills. And I believe at one point for potentially like over a year, it was the number one most traveled place in the world on Airbnb. It was uh, cabins. It's in the same county of Athens County, which is Ohio University. So it's a rural area, but it started to boom because COVID and people, you know, weren't able to go out and do things. So people just started booking little getaways for like cabins and, you know, being able to just hang out outside of a campfire, hot tub, all that fun stuff. Uh, but also you could work, right? And the issue though, years ago, when I know I had gone years ago, is a lot of the cabins and places like didn't have any cell phone service and any internet service, which, you know, half of me is like, that's phenomenal. I love doing that every once in a while. Like I want to just completely disconnect because you say that till you get there and you're like, eh, maybe one more email, maybe one more phone call, right? With this, this area, there's parts where you're like, nah, you, you're you're actually disconnected. You're actually disconnected, which I think is very good. But now, obviously, there's, you know, technology and areas that's bringing in, you know, high-speed internet and fiber optics and Elon Musk is shooting satellites up in the air left and right so people can, uh, can, can basically be more mobile than ever and more, dis and more disconnected and yet connected at the same time. What would you say is the biggest uh, hurdle? Like, what's the biggest thing that has your eye and attention as far as real estate in the United States, as far as what you had experienced in 2008 in the financial collapse and the housing market collapse. Obviously, real estate has gotten expensive, right? Uh, but that's relative depending on where you live and who you are and where you're from and all that, right? But what, what would you say like you're really keeping your eye on right now in terms of uh, the market conditions of real estate? Uh, the interest rates have, have kind of really cooled things down for sure. You know, the, the big thing that everyone talks about, you know, especially with the single family home market is, you know, this, the supply and demand thing, you know, there's not enough supply of, of homes to meet the demand. So I think we're going to be fighting with that for a while. So probably home builders are probably going to be successful in the, you know, in the coming years for sure. And, uh, you know, if the interest rates come back down a little bit, I think that the, the market's probably going to really heat up again. Now, potentially, you know, anything can happen. There could be major world events or, you know, who knows, who knows what's going to happen to kind of throw a wrench in the gears of things. So it's hard to kind of, you know, predict some of those things that, that could potentially happen. But what I could tell you is that the feeling of things now is, is way different from 2007, 2008. I mean, it was very clear that there was a huge run up. It was very clear that many of the people that were buying homes were not qualified to buy the homes. Um, so that's not really happening these days at all. So it was almost like, um, like watching a train wreck happen, but you know, like you could see it, like you could feel it kind of, 
you know, happening. And it's not, it's not that way right now. And that like the, the fundamentals of like how that crashed and everything like that. So, so different than right now. So I think we're going to, you know, I don't know, we might be stagnant for a while, kind of in our market. We'll see what the interest rates are like and we'll see, you know, we'll see, you know, if there's any big world events to kind of throw things off or whatever. But I think the market in, in general is going to be doing pretty well. And, you know, I don't, I don't see any major downsides coming unless some, something major happens, but, but we'll see. So I think there's opportunity in a lot of areas, obviously, you know, you're talking big picture, real estate stuff, the office, uh, the office stuff has been hit really hard, you know, in, in major cities, especially New York, San Francisco, places like that. I mean, they're, um, they're really struggling. I think there's going to need to be some repurposing of a lot of those types of buildings. So maybe there's an opportunity there if you're a developer that can get creative and repurpose some of that, some of that inventory, some of that office inventory and figure out how to make it residential or something like that. And uh, so I know there's opportunity in, in niches like that, but you know, I'm, I'm not, a, not a commercial real estate expert. One of the things I think is, is a big opportunity in the land space is that, that not a lot of people talk about is the renewable energy side of things, you know, developing solar farms, wind farms, things like that. I mean, there's a big push to take our electricity grid from fossil fuel to renewable energy by 2035. There's a lot of incentives. The government is dangling out there for people to make that happen. It's just kind of like a tedious process now to, to make those projects happen. But I know or believe that uh, that should help process should be getting easier over time here. And I think there's a big upside for those types of projects if you can figure out how to do them. You know, yeah, that's a that's a really good point you bring up in terms of uh, the renewable energy, right? Because I would agree with you. I think interest rates, I think supply and demand, uh, I think that's all kind of relative, if you will. Uh, but as far as the commercial and repurposing, I think that's going to be something to really keep your eyes on with those markets, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, really just any big metropolitan area that had massive office space and now half the building is is empty uh, and those tenants are maybe not in their pain and you have a loan coming due if you're the owner on the commercial side, right? So if you are a developer, you know how to rezone and you got to repurpose and, and change it from commercial to residential, uh, that's that's going to be really interesting to see unfold in those those markets that we had just mentioned. But one point you bring up in terms of opportunity in land Absolutely. is renewable energy. That's where, uh, you know, back here in Ohio, we've got some people that have sides in their yard. They're not, they're not too thrilled about that. Buying up the farmland, controlling the food supply, putting solar panels in, in uh, not so sunny Ohio. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to see unfold as far as the areas that you're very, very focused on. Are you comfortable sharing like markets that you're hyper focused on the next 12 months, 24 months? And, uh, and I say that because maybe some people have deals they want to work with you on. You work with people and, and partner with people. I uh, just maybe shed some light on that as far as like, what, what are you looking for? in terms of opportunity. So first of all, I will buy and sell land anywhere in the US. So I would even sell outside the US if I, if I knew how to do it right. But uh, first of all, that's not, that's not really a reality at this point. But, but for the US, I would um, buy and sell anywhere. There are really restrictions on that. We do a lot of business on the East Coast, um, 
up to, you know, like Pennsylvania, we do Ohio, Indiana as well. Uh, and then, you know, down the whole East Coast, Texas, Oklahoma, like Alabama, like all these, you know, all those states throughout there. So the Pacific Northwest as well, some in California. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of, we're just kind of all over the place, you know, and I'm, I'm here and I never see any of these properties in person. So we're just, you know, we've got a system in place to research these properties, do all our due diligence on these properties without, you know, anyone from my team actually physically going there, you know? But yeah, as far as big locations, it doesn't matter. Property types, that really doesn't matter. But you admitting that you bought a course, right? Uh, yes. And coming back to like information, I just, a big believer People that have built a business or they're online, we're always stressing, right? Like listen to podcast shows, watch videos on YouTube, consume content, right? Consume information, buy courses, go to mastermind events, network, grab coffee with people. But it can be a little overwhelming, right? In this digital age that we're in and this information that we're in, how do we know what information is right and wrong? How do we know that this course is actually legitimate, right? Uh, it, there's just more courses than ever before. There's more podcast shows than ever before. It's just like flooding the marketplace, right? But I'm curious, are you doing any type of coaching? Do you have a course? Do you have any resources of uh, of such on your end that you've helped uh, clients and, and people in, in your community? Yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got a lot of things. Uh, you know, first of all, I've got our land flipping business where we, we, all those numbers that we talked about and everything like that. And just this past year, we uh, were laying the groundwork for a uh, another side of our business, which is the education side, basically showing people exactly how to do this business model that that we do on the other side of things. So um, it's a, we created a community. It's called Land Conquest. If you go to landconquest.com, um, it's a free community. You can join us on the school platform if you've ever um, been uh, in, in a community there. So, and in part of that community, every single community member gets access to a, uh, our training program, which is the Land Conquest training program. But I give that away for free to every single community member. It's, you know, over 10 hours of videos and not just me rambling on. It's like very concise, pet instructional type stuff and put a lot of money into production of it. And, uh, and planning and executing that the whole team did. So yeah, we've got that, uh, that whole thing. It shows people exactly how to flip land A to Z every, every part of the process. Um, I do have some mentorship programs that we just started up as well, you know, for people that are looking for more assistance, looking for direct contact with me to Q and A's and, and, uh, you know, accountability and all that kind of stuff that goes with it. So we've got those programs available if people are needing needing extra or wanting extra. Uh, and then as well, I also have a program which we just launched this past year, which has been amazing, called Partner with Pete. And you can find it at partnerwithpete.com. And essentially, it's a it's a deal funding program. So land is different than flipping homes, you know, as far as the financing goes. There really are hard money lenders out there for financing. You know, you can't just go say, oh, I want 70%, you know, uh, of what this is worth and, you know, give me the money to close this deal. Th that's the issue. You either got to have your own cash or a partner to work with on the deal. So partner with Pete is meant to fill that gap. You know, if you don't want to use your own money, you don't have the, your own funds to actually put towards purchasing those properties. Basically what happens is uh, with, with the program, you submit a deal. I look at it myself. If it's a deal, uh, I will agree to partner on it. And then what that means is that I will 
use my funds to actually purchase on the deal. And then not just that, but we take it, we plug it into our whole team and all of our systems, research, due diligence, um, marketing, everything like that. And then when the property resells, we simply split the profits 50-50. So um, it's a real win-win type scenario. Um, from the re- investor's perspective, it's great because there's no downside. There's no risk. You know, like if we lose money on a deal, it's not like I'm coming back on the investor and saying, hey, you need to pay me some of the money that we lost. Uh, if we lose money, that's my fault because I, I, you know, I got the deal wrong. I thought it was a winner, but I guess it wasn't. So uh, thankfully that hasn't happened yet. I'm sure it will at some point in time. But, um, you know, if the property needs extra work like a surveys or brush clearing or anything like that, um, we pay for those fees and we just use that in the calculation at the end when we're, when we're uh, figuring out the profits. So, um, so yeah, it's meant to be a real win-win. And that's part of, the pre- uh, part of the reason why I give away that training program for free because I want people out there trained and learning how to find these deals and being able to identify what a good deal looks like. And then hopefully they will submit into that program and then we'll all win. Now, yeah, I was going to ask because I think that's uh, a great strategy, right? It's like, hey, here's everything, how to do it. Here's the entire blueprint. I believe that's kind of where the, the mentorship and coaching and consulting space has gone over the last year and where it's going to continue to head, I think, going into you know 2024 here. Uh, people that were selling that information, right? which is not bad if people still are instead going, you know what, I'd rather just give all this information for free to my community because there's competitors coming in left and right. But then I can create unique ways to build also that free community with more one-on-one time with Pete, more one-on-one time with your team, uh, a little bit more exclusive opportunities such as partnering with you. So, you know, events, right? Having events, workshops, um, and also, you know, this is a business, right? So there's things that you learn that you can't quite teach somebody and, or sometimes put in a course or put in a community until that time comes, whether it's hiring somebody and firing somebody or whatever the circumstance may be sure you can say, Hey, here's resources of finding talent and questions to ask and leadership. And here's, you know, contracts or, you know, consult with your counsel as far as drafting contracts of letting, letting go. But in terms of like the things you can't really measure, right, that it's, it's really hard sometimes uh, to even articulate that or even put that in some type of like coaching material. It's real life, real time stuff that the mentorship, uh, but then also the partner, right? Like uh, one thing you brought up and I was curious on is the financing when it comes to real estate arguably the most proven asset class in human history, it's pretty straightforward. Hey, you buy a house, you get financing from a bank, uh, you put X percent down or leverage a first-time homebuyer program or whatever portfolio program there may be with that particular bank or whatever that deal is. Whereas with with land, it's it's out there, right? Like you can find some ways to technically finance land, but usually the loan to value uh, as far as if it's a hundred thousand dollar land, uh, you know, you're it's pretty difficult, at least from from my experiences, to get anything above like fifty percent loan to value, anything above like you know fifty thousand. So that's still a 
good amount of cash you'd have to bring to the table yourself or have to bring in a partner. Um, and is, did you use your cash or are you raising capital as well? Like how, how are you doing all these, these different deals at once? Dan? At the beginning, when I first started, thankfully I had a, a pool of money kind of saved up from our other business. Um, so it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't like millions of dollars or that, that I'd committed to this or anything like that. But, um, I did at first start using all my own money and smaller deals and quickly that kind of snowballed to a bigger, bigger pile of, of, of equity than I could keep rolling. And thankfully we're selling these properties quite, pretty quickly. So you're able to keep turning the money over, over which is nice. This past year, you know, that was like for the first two years, I mostly did all my own deals. I did partner on two larger deals, meaning I asked, uh, I partnered with another money partner that then we split the equity on the, on the, the profits or whatever. Um, I haven't done that for a while, but, um, this past year I was like, okay, well I've got a, a you know, I have a podcast and this community we're building and everything like that. So I had people were kind of reaching out to me and saying, Hey, if you need, you know, private lending or whatever, then, um, you know, I, I knew that was available to me and I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe we can make it a win-win so they actually make, make some money as well. And I can then use some private lenders for some of the, the larger deals. So we started doing that. You know, I've got some private lenders that were, well, you know, pretty much finance any of the, the good deals that I, I bring to them. And I pretty much only use it for the larger deals, meaning, you know, 50,000 plus. And they basically lend the money to close on the deal. We pay them, you know, uh, 12% and a couple points. And, um, you know, and it's secured, you know, like we're buying these properties for generally 50% of, of, uh, market value anyhow. So it's a pretty secure investment for them and they make a good interest rate. And then when we sell the property, we just roll it into another one. So I've been doing that, uh, this year. That's, that's really helped to kind of scale things up a lot quicker. So I will likely keep, continue to do that. But, but for the most part, um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, in the smaller deals, I just, uh, I've got cash to deploy. So it makes sense for me to just kind of do all those for ourselves um, as far as that goes. As far as other investments, uh, do you like any other type of investing outside of land? Like, do you buy uh, like actual, you know, dwellings, right? One to four unit residential. Do you have any, you know, investment properties yourself? Do you like crypto, digital assets like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Um, again, obviously not in the business, financial tax, legal advice, right. but- I'm, I'm more, you know, kind of curious because we know in, in real estate, right? Like cash flow and everyone wants to be financially independent, have passive income and, you know, sure you can build systems and a team in place to make it to an extent seem passive. But in reality, this is, this is a business that you built. You got to keep exchanging your time to be able to keep earning this, this cash, right? So I'm curious, like what's, what's your take on other investment, other asset classes? Personally, I don't really enjoy the other asset classes, but I do own them and buy them, um, mostly for, for tax reasons. You know, we, uh, the, the good thing about this business is it generates a lot of profit. You know, it's a short term hold type situation. So there's no, you know, longer term tax benefits that you might get in holding a piece of property for over a year or something like that. So, uh, you know, getting depreciation or any of that kind of stuff, but it does, it's like any other business, you know, you're, buying and selling stuff. We could be buying and selling, you know, coffee mugs and it just generates cash, you know? So 
the the unique thing with real estate, since I'm a real estate professional, is that you can buy you know your assets, uh, real estate assets, if you want, and then you can accelerate the depreciation and then write that off against your gains. So I've been doing that, and uh, you know we do hold you know a number of other like um, residential type properties. We bought a motel, things like that to. Uh, you know, keep for the longer term, things like that. But do I enjoy them? Not really. <laughs> I like the land. It's very, it's so much simpler. Yeah, because you got to start dealing with tenants or property management companies. So it's really more of a tax play, right? It's not necessarily how much money you make, it's how much you keep. And yeah, that's funny that you brought that up because that was going to be a, a question of mine was the curiosity around uh, being a tax professional, again, for the hundredth time here, not financial tax legal advice, but being a a real estate professional allows you to do cost segregation studies on the property to take the depreciation, the wear and tear of a property and accelerate that write-off instead of over, I believe it's 27 and a half years for residential. Uh, you can write that all off in year one and or I believe it's maybe dropped by like 20%, maybe 80%, 60, 40, 20. But the rumor is I think that might be coming back to 100% maybe in the new administration. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see. If that happens, I could see how that would just be one of the many reasons why real estate continues to increase in value and price or the individuals uh, like yourself, right, uh, that, are, that are buying real estate strictly for a tax play where it's like, yeah, sure, the passive income is great as far as covering expenses and the tenant paying rent and the hypothetical value of the property going up in the equity. But in reality, it's like, I will literally lose money and I need to buy property for tax yeah. reasons alone. So big yeah. background, I, I could see that being one of the reasons why valuations go up uh, alongside it as well. It's it's one of those things, uh, you know, every, you know, I'm always on the lookout for those types of properties. And um, I don't know, the, the ones that appeal to me the most are the ones where I can add some value to you know, like they need some work or whatever. But then when I, I buy those properties, then I'm almost not happy I bought them because then it takes time away from my main business and it's a headache generally. So, yeah, you so start I kind of, it kind of made it my goal to buy some more turnkey stuff, you know, so I don't have to worry. And maybe maybe turnkey stuff where I can, you know, hire a better, better management team or something like that to improve the numbers of, of, of the property rather than, you know, doing the six up thing. Yeah. But then it's kind of funny, right? Cause it's like, then that even becomes like a business, right? Cause then you got to manage, you got to manage contractors and you got to manage the management company or you're just like, well, I might as well do this myself, but then you're turning into a management company. So at the end of the day, you know, most things are still truly not passive, right? In terms of like taking zero, zero time, most things are usually semi-passive. So I, I definitely hear you there. So as far as like what you do on a day to day, I'm curious because it seems like you have a lot going on, but it also seems like you have a very good business intelligence and uh, understanding and knowledge and just overall, just like kind of life experience. So what are some things that you, you know, enjoy to do that helps you, you know, in the process of uh, being an entrepreneur, being busy, having stresses, right? And, and you know, things need to be get done, you know, need to get done. Like, how do you, how do you navigate, I guess, day-to-day -day life? I'm curious. Yeah. So I'm a very regimented person, meaning 
very consistent, I guess you could say. My wife always makes fun of me because I eat the same stuff every day. I do the same things every day. I mean, every day I work out um, and every day, I, Monday through Friday, I work out. I go, I'm there at 6 a.m. at the gym. And, um, you know, I've done that for a very long time. Uh, so that's kind of always how I start my day. Uh, and I wake up early every day. I'm like up at 4.50 in the morning on the weekdays and the weekends. I even wake, I wake up at 6 so I get to sleep in a little bit. <laughs> but I'm pretty much, I'm at one of those seasons right now where I'm working every day. I'm trying to really build both of these businesses, getting them to the point where, where I can take a little bit of time off, I guess, and uh, getting great team members in place that are making all the kind of, uh, you know, little day-to-day decisions and things like that, that I'm currently doing a lot of that right now. So uh, this past year was big for me because I've really started putting the organization in place for, for both both sides of the business. I've, I hired a COO on the, the land flipping business and also on the education business. So, I mean, the goal is to not have all the team members reporting to me have, have the uh, team members reporting to them and have different layers of kind of management. Um, on the land flipping business, we've got about um, 12 full-time people uh, working in it right now. And the other side of things, uh, we have a combination of about five or six people kind of working on the team, some full-time, some just uh, as needed, like salespeople and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, we're, we're building and, um, you know, just kind of really focused on making them, you know, professional standalone companies that could operate without me if, if need to be. So I think that's, uh, you, you touched on it with the mentorship thing a little bit earlier, that there's some things that are kind of hard to, to really put into a course. And that's one of the things that we have a higher level mentorship program where I think I can add a lot of value to people that are looking to scale their land clipping businesses just from doing deals on their own to turning it into a professional company to hiring a great team to doing all these things that need to happen uh, that they may not even be aware of. So I think that, that I'm, you know, some steps ahead of them there, I can really help them shortcut a lot of those things for sure. So that, that was one of the big goals of, of one of the mentorship programs that we've got is like, hey, uh, we're looking for people, all the people in this program that really want to scale their business and turn it into real businesses and those types of people for sure, uh, really help them out in the, in the, in the process. So, um, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to connect you with somebody I know they're, they're in the land flipping business, uh, in the Boston area. And I'll have to, uh, I'll have to connect you guys here, here offline. They had, uh, reached out to me for some like coaching consulting and I will likely still do that. But in terms of like the nuances that I don't know, right. In terms of like the actual land flipping more of a, you know what I do? Like you could say kind of like higher level executive business coaching and seeing things not necessarily so much in the business. Uh, but I'm curious though, I think that one thing that you've learned based on an assumption here is the nuances of building a team and again, hiring people and becoming not necessarily self-employed, but a business owner, right? A difference between being like a hustler, grinding to a CEO, to being a master of capital, a master of time, a master of, uh, you know, building other individuals to, to step up and to grow the business, right? So 
what are some things that you've learned, maybe things that you didn't do so well at the beginning in terms of building the team, uh, or maybe that and maybe some things that you feel like that you do do well when it comes to building a team and building culture and community within the organization that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. You know, I've, I've always struggled with that. You know, I've always, always struggled with, you know, I feel like I'm always this type that I'm, I'm confident in what I can do. And I always feel like I can do it really well. And it's hard for me to hand off tasks. Um, you know, but, but it's been a realization, especially this, you know, past year and a half, really, I really started to realize that in order to, to really grow, I needed to get past that. I needed to make a concerted effort to trust my team, get great team members, first of all, trust my team to do their jobs. And then anytime I've got a task or something like that, which I've identified that someone else could do, I, I come up with the training real quick, film a loom video, whatever it is I need to do, and then hand it off. So I'm always looking for new things that I can hand off, hand off to, to another team member that's you know, in reality, they may be better at that particular task than me. So it's, it's a continuous process of that. So the other thing that, that really kind of struck me kind of recently, I've listened to this book called Who Not How. It's, um, it's kind of a, kind of a basic concept in a way, but the light bulb turned on for me in a way that I always thought, you know, in order to do something, I would think about a problem in business, like for instance, you know, we're working on our marketing for our uh, education business or whatever. And I was, I, I've always liked doing that kind of stuff myself, but I never felt like I'm a good, you know, writer or copywriter. Yeah. Or so I was written on that stuff. Uh, then I thought it, the concept of the book is that you don't have to learn how to do everything yourself. You just need to know who can do it. So who can you plug in that can do that for you? And even if they're not 100% of what, you can do or whatever to, you know, you can find some people that are pretty close. And likely if you're being honest with yourself, you can probably find some people that are better at you at that particular task. So, you know, I've, I've just been really thinking about that a lot. Like, okay, I don't, I don't need to learn how to do this myself. I need to have an understanding of this. I need to, I need to leverage the experts, the people that already have this figured out their years experience in this particular thing and hire them to do that. So, uh, keeping that in mind is a big thing for me. <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't know if I heard this in that book, the who, not the how. It's it's not like, how do I do this? It's more of who needs to do it, right? Uh, phenomenal book. And that's really like that transformation stage, right? Of going from like hustler, like a CEO of uh, immediately we think like, okay, we need to dive into this because that's just how we are, right? That's how entrepreneurs are. Like, we'll just roll the sleeves up and we'll get it done ourselves. Like, why take the time? And uh, that's usually what I, that's what I recognize too. Like, it takes time in your day when you're already busy and short on it in the first place we are like oh, i don't really have time to like explain it and create a loom video and an sop a standing operating procedure of how to do this and blah 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 and to delegate it out right or to delegate it out for them to automate that process and then in reality it's like well no that 10 minutes 25 minutes an hour maybe a couple hours maybe a couple days to like really make sure it's dialed in even weeks might even take a month, depending on what the task is. Uh, it's in reality, hypothetically going to save you significantly more time. And even if they do it, you know, half as good as you, 
in a sense, there's still a net positive. You're like, wait, I'm getting 100% of my time back and they're doing it and still getting half of the result. So really there's a 50% net positive. Uh, that's usually the founder syndrome, right? Where founder were like, no one can do it better than me. Uh, and, and hey, sure, there are some things that, you know, we can do significantly better than anyone, you know, hence why, why we're the owner, right? So totally respect that. What are you finding yourself doing most of these days and or maybe a better question, maybe we'll see, uh, <laughs> is what do you try to get off your plate right now? Like, what are you trying to maybe stop doing? Like, is there still something? Because there's always something. There's always something we're still doing. We're like, how in the hell am I still doing? You ask great questions, Tyler. I'll tell you. <laughs> you know where I'm coming from here. Yeah, there's uh, the, the big thing right now is the property evaluations. You know, every deal, every lead that comes in, I'm not, I'm not looking at every lead and everything like that. We've got someone that's kind of, in fact, my daughter is in the role right now. She's evaluating a lot of these leads that come in and is kind of assigning a value to them. And it kind of uh, gets filtered to me then to make the kind of final decision on things. So ultimately, I know in order for this business to get to the point where it can run without me, without that daily intervention, I need someone that really understands the properties, really understands how to evaluate them, can determine if a deal is a deal or not a deal, and, and someone that I trust. Because without that, it's always going to be me. And it takes a lot of my time. Um, so, I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things I feel like I'm really good at, but I know that there are other people out there that are probably better than me at it. So I just need to find them and bring them onto the team. So we're actively looking for you know, someone that will be a, be a great fit for that. And hopefully multiple people that will be a great fit for that. Cause it would be great to, you know, as kind of thinking through this a lot, like, it'd be great to have kind of a system in place where, you know, uh, any property purchase we've got, it goes through multiple layers of, of kind of decision makers, people that know what they're doing and can, you know, they all have to check off on it before we proceed with the purchase. So, um, I think that would, you know, be a good system to kind of, make me feel comfortable to get out of that role. So, Yeah, and I would imagine the obvious to that is once you're saying yes to a deal, you're signing contracts and you're committing, you're committing money. Like that's the transaction right there. It's, you're making the money they say on the buy, right? Like it's, it's not necessarily going to be on the exit. So it's arguably the most important part of a transaction is saying yes and deciding to buy. Uh, but it kind of comes with a lot of nuances. I would imagine, again, thinking out loud with this, which is, Okay, how do you properly incentivize that person? I'm sure every deal that you've bought, you have not been perfect. You probably have had a 100% profit. Uh, or maybe you have, but you probably would have rather broke even or, or lost money in terms of getting your time and sanity back, right? Out of pageant. Uh, so they're going to naturally, quote unquote, buy bad deals. And so that's, I'm sure, like a subconscious thing is giving that, that piece up. Uh, but then also incentivizing them if they're good, like I'm assuming they're going to want upside in terms of, uh, you know, getting more profit on the deal and, and income, right? Like they're, they're likely going to come with a, a pretty solid cost, but that's the cool part of building the community, right? Like that's the best part of building a community and mentoring people to create those uh, opportunities for, I think that's like a hidden thing that entrepreneurs don't talk about enough. As I've reflected on my journey is when you build a community, also what you can do build your team from it. You could start sourcing talent from there. 
So that's a that's a very important piece that I think that people are not talking about enough. And as I'm saying, when I'm I'm writing that down myself, remind myself. <laughs> that's pretty funny you said that because uh, I was overlooking that. You know, we've got a community of people about you know uh, 2,400 people that are you know really interested in land flipping and and everything like that. So on our, our school community and. Previously, we're just posting on all the job sites and everything like that. And one day I was like, you know, I should just do a little post in the community about it. I mean, there actually could be some really interested people. And then did a post and, you know, I got 15 really, you know, qualified applicants right away. And uh, so I, I was just overlooking that. And that's probably the most obvious thing, like right in, right in front of my nose, you know. But uh, but it's so funny you said that because I just, just had that experience with that. So I love it. You had mentioned your daughter. Uh, well, first off, you had mentioned working with your wife in the previous venture, and then now your daughter's working in the business with you as well. What's worked for you and, and maybe some lessons that you've learned along the way working with uh, your loved ones in business? Yeah, it's funny. You know, um, my wife and I, we've always kind of been entrepreneurs. I've, you know, was talking about this a while back, like the last time I had a job or where I worked for someone else was 1999, you know? Uh, I was a financial advisor when I moved out to San Diego, um, got a job with Prudential Securities, got my Series 7, Series 63 license, all that kind of stuff. Thought I wanted to be a stockbroker. And uh, and then I realized, you know, I was living paycheck to paycheck and trying to tell people how to invest their life savings. So uh, there was a little bit of a conflict for me there. But uh, so that's a sidetrack. But but ever since then, we've been self-employed. We've been working together. We've always been a great team that way. It's because we do the, the division of labor thing. Like I'm the, I'm the, the sales marketing. I'm, I'm responsible for driving the new business coming in. She's always the back end thing, uh, side of things, keeping things organized, the bookkeeping, the money, the finance, like all that kind of, uh, stuff behind the scenes, any of the business operation stuff that needs to happen. So we've always been like that. And my wife is still very involved in the business in that way. Sorry, my watch is talking to me. Oh, that my daughters, uh, it's been an interesting journey. I've got three daughters. I've got uh, a 23-year-old, 21-year-old, and 14-year-old daughter. And um, the two older ones, actually, a couple of years ago, they started expressing some interest in the land flipping business just because they saw what we were doing and, you know, the deals. And we would always talk about that stuff and everything. So I started having them do some work for us and evaluating properties and just kind of trying to get a feel for the business. And the, what the interesting thing is they had a little money saved up. They each had $4,000 saved up and they want to know if they could buy a property and flip it. And then it's like, sure. You know, I, I sent them one of the smaller deals that I had under contract and they took that $8,000 that they started with together and they parlayed it into $84,000 in just a matter of six land flips. So they still live at home. So they don't have expenses, you know, like uh, buying, a, you know, paying for rent or anything here in San Diego, which is nice. So they were able to you know, just keep that money rolling without, you know, tapping into that. So, so yeah, so they've been, they've been really heavily involved in, in the land flipping space since then and looking to do more deals and all that kind of stuff. But my older daughter uh, recent, recently kind of stepped into the role of like being the evaluation first line on the evaluation side of things. So she's really been, she's good at that type of thing. And she has that mindset. She loves researching properties. She just understands it. Like we're kind of really on the same page, uh, her and I on that. So it's been great. You know, she's, uh, she's really growing as a person and, 
business person and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of, kind of fun to see. So I love working with the family. I think that's a big part of who we are, what we do. And, uh, just kind of thankful that we're kind of set up in that way that we can make that happen. That's awesome. Did you have that or what was like your, your upbringing like, because, you know, uh, we had, I don't think I said this before we went live, but you usually say this every show, the name of the show is all for nothing. And the reasoning why I named it that is because most people do all these things for nothing, right? They go to their deathbed with regret. They're living paycheck to paycheck. And uh, not necessarily that's bad. It's more of the, the regret piece, right? Or maybe both. They have nothing to show for it. They do all these things day in and day out. And they go, what am I doing all of this for? For nothing. Or in reverse where, you know, somebody like yourself uh, seems to be in this period of life where you can likely hand over assets, you can hand over a business, but most importantly, hand over a mentality of mindset, a, a way of life. And if that doesn't happen and or the conflict of that side is 70% of the time on average, it returns back to poverty within the second generation. If there is quote unquote generational wealth handed over. Yeah. I'm curious. What was your, like kind of what, what was your upbringing like in terms of, in terms of that? Yeah, yeah, well, it's interesting. My upbringing, I had a great up, upbringing, great parents. They're still uh, with us and everything. And uh, But we were never uh, a wealthy family in any way. And uh, I always had that like deep desire to like, make a lot of money and, and actually be a business owner myself. My dad was a teacher, an English teacher, and my mom, um, she worked at, at a gift shop. And then, you know, I eventually, you know, that I knew that the owner wanted to get out of the business and she was kind of running everything. I'm like, you should talk to him about buying the business and everything. Like, so I talked her into buying this business from, from him. Anyhow, she, uh, they ended up doing that. They, they're not really, they were not really entrepreneurs. They weren't really cut out for it. They just never really liked that, that side of things. But I always like found that fascinating. I always wanted to, I always loved kind of like the concept of real estate because we never even owned a home growing up. We lived in an apartment two brothers and everything like that. So that was kind of, um, that was kind of always a big thing for me. I wanted to, first of all, buy a home, um, but I wanted more than that. I wanted to own my own business. I didn't know what kind of business, you know, I went through a lot of different things like that, but that, that upbringing really shaped who I am now because it, it gives me a, uh, gives me a drive. I think it's just not there for other people. self assistance, I guess, maybe. And I don't know, like at this point, um, I'm comfortable and I don't need to like really strive for bigger things if I really evaluate things. Um, but and I can never settle, you know, and, and maybe that's a bad thing I, in, in some regards, but I'm always, the progress is what's kind of fun to me, you know, like always stretching and always trying to do better and do more and everything like that. So my wife, why, why you went out of curiosity? You have, you have two siblings. Uh, it's, cause honestly, I feel like it's pretty abnormal, right? When you, Especially, you know, when you're hosting people on a show, like a lot of times, uh, the guests, and even if I've been on guests on the show, like a lot of times our moment of life has been those painful moments, right? Like when we've been in the, the, the heat of the fire of life and everything around you is like burning down and you're like, what the fuck do I do? Like, what's going on here? How do I navigate through this? Uh, in reality, that fire is burning the dead things around you and allowing for new life, right? And a lot of those, moments for the most part for people is like childhood trauma. Uh, it's these pain points. Whereas what you're saying is like, Hey, no, I grew up good parents, 
you know, although they were not hyper driven in terms of being multi, multi millionaires and building an empire, uh, that's not bad, right? Like, seems like that's, that's, uh, that's a okay. And they're still around, which is incredible to hear. You have two siblings, um, but you're very regimented, right? Like you're hitting the gym, you're taking care of yourself, uh, running the business. Like, where's that spark coming from, right? Like, where's that fire coming from? Is there something that you can think of a moment where you're like, oh yeah, this is what my brother did to me one day. And I told him, I told him that, you know what? Nah, this, this is how it's going to go. I just reminded him of something. Actually, so we had a, a din- family dinner. We went out to them and I just reminded him of something because his son has just lost his like two front teeth, you know, because he's eight years old, eight, 10 years old, something like that. And uh, I'm, I'm like, Chris, do you remember? Um, no, I told, I told my, uh, my nephew, I'm like, Hey, you know how I lost my two front teeth? Your, your dad punched me in the face. <laughs> and he's like, I did. I don't even remember. I go, yeah, yeah, I remember. It's not the big trauma or anything like that, but I just thought it was funny, you know? Uh, but you know, I, I wish there was some sort, I, I don't wish there was, but I, I, I wish there was something I could pinpoint as like a trauma or, or something like that. I really did have this desire though, growing up, like we never had much money and we had we had enough to like, there was always food on the table and all that kind of stuff, but money was always an issue. Like we can never, I can never buy what my friends had. I can never buy Nikes. I always had to buy it. Like my parents would buy knockoff sneakers, you know, stuff like that. And it always just kind of like, when I get older, I'm going to have enough money. I can do whatever I want. So that was always the thing in my head. You know, my parents are great and they did a great job raising us and, and, um, good, good family and everything like that. But there was that, that there were, there was that uh, something that it was something that I identified from when I was young and that keeps me going today for some reason. I mean, I just always, um, I just always want to do better. I would just feel, feel like I can do better. Always kind of striving towards things. I know that I'm happiest when I'm working towards things, you know, anytime that I feel like I get comfortable or put things on autopilot or whatever, I'm less happy. So I've looked back on those times in my life and I'm like, okay, this period I was like, okay, I'm, I was just kind of cruising, just kind of not working towards any big goals or whatever. And those are the times that I was unhappy. Times I was happiest are times like now when I'm really, really pushing and working hard towards things. So for, for probably the past 10 years, uh, you know, I made it, I made that realization. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm happiest when I'm pushing forward and pushing towards things. And that's just who I am and what I do. So that's what, that's why I, I put these regimented things in place or a, you know, everything is, uh, everything is the same and it just keeps me very focused on my goals and stuff. Every- yeah. They say if it's, if it's, uh, not broke, don't fix it. Right. But if it could be better, might as well be broken. And that's what kind of resonates when you tell me that is like, well, you know, Hey, life is good. Nothing was really broken, but if it could be better, it might as well be broken. And I think that says a lot about you. It says a lot about humans in general that, you know, purpose, right. And like always growing and sure it can be, uh, unhealthy but if you are doing things the right way and aligned in your purpose and it's not uh consuming you right then you know humans we, we got to be doing things right like we got to be building things and growing if not you just you're stagnant right you're just stagnant and it's not that much of a pur- purposeful life right so uh, i appreciate you sharing that Anything else that you would want to share that maybe you haven't shared before uh, on a podcast show, or maybe you've shared in your your community? Uh, maybe it's 
some wise words to your family, your friends, your members, like anything that can maybe come to mind that you've been wanting to share in this season of life that you're going through? Well, uh, that, that's a really good question too. And I wish, wish I had something better to say, something really good to share that I have not shared before. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, kind of, uh, going back on like that, that concept of moving forward, pushing towards goals and everything like that. I would say I'm a, I'm a very happy person though, because I'm able to look back on things that I've accomplished, I guess you could say. And I recognize kind of like where I came from and what I built to this point. And I'm not, not to the point, I'm not always thinking about these goals because I'm not happy until I get there. Uh, I'm happy with what I've achieved. And I'm, every time I look back, like this last year, we did so many big things within our businesses and life and everything like that. So I, I recognize all those, those achievements and everything like that. Happy with what I accomplished, but looking forward, I still want to do a lot more. So. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's a, any big words for wisdom, but I think looking back on those, those past times and what you have accomplished and those steps that you've taken to get to the point that you're, where you're at. I mean, those are, those are all big things. And, and, uh, I think that leads to, uh, a level of happiness if you can just appreciate those things and not, not always thinking like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have this or I don't have that. And I'm working towards that, but I'm not happy until I get there. And then when you get there, you're not happy anyhow. I'm, you know. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to live in a limbo like that. Yeah, it's not that peaceful, right? There's a difference of like being happy and peace, but also it's that process of being present, but yet still inspired and motivated to do more while being content with what you have, right? That's at least the best way I could put it in terms of how I seek happiness and, and peace is like, oh no, I'm very thrilled and grateful for what I have. And if I never have anything more, like that's totally fine but I'm inspired and motivated to do more and to have more and to give more. So uh, good stuff, man. I, I appreciate our conversation. And yeah, appreciate yeah, I loved it. Some good value here as far as uh, your business and really just kind of the mindset that you've had and what it's taken to get here, where your goals are and being open and transparent about that. Uh, maybe just share again how people can get a hold of you, how they can check out your the resources you have and the content and everything you have out there online. Give yourself yeah. a shout out here. Great, great. I appreciate it. Uh, first of all, I did. I really appreciate this conversation we had. You, uh, you do really ask great questions. So you, <laughs> you, you dig in, you know, where other people don't, you know, which is which is cool. Uh, as far as where to find me at, and we've got a lot of content that I put out there online. One of my big things always is like, you know, if you're going to be teaching people how to do things, that that legitimacy of like actually doing that business or that thing that you're teaching is like very important. So. It was always very important for me to have that, that going and continuing and doing that actively now so I can then share the best, uh, the best stuff to, to my students. But so, uh, I've got a website called turningprofit.com. That's the website for our podcast as well. So we do a, uh, weekly podcast. It's on YouTube or, you know, Spotify or Apple podcasts, any of that kind of stuff. It's called turning profit. And, uh, on the on that, we talk about real estate investing. We talk about uh, lots of episodes about land flipping itself. And uh, yeah, so it's, that's myself and my wife that are on the podcast there. So on that website, Turning Profit, I've been doing a monthly income report for the past couple of years, which every month I detail on my business, you know, like how much 
revenue we brought in, what profit we brought in, every single deal we did, what we bought it for, what we sold it for, notes about that deal. So it's like a vast uh, collection of content now. You can go back on all those past income reports and see the progression in our business. In fact, I've got a video that I did, which was our first 50 deals, which I talked through the first 50 deals, all the numbers of them, all the details about all those deals. So my goal was to kind of put it out there so people can see what this business is all about, you know, like what types of things are possible, what kind of deals are being done, all that kind of stuff, the challenges that may come along with those and, uh, and learn from those. So still doing those income reports every month. So we've got that on the, on that website there, obviously landconquest.com. That's where our community is, our school community. And that's where we've got training program. Uh, I also do some regular uh, what we call them deal evaluation Zoom calls where students submit deals and I just share my screen on Zoom and I evaluate those deals, you know, like I was buying them myself. So they could see exactly what I'm looking at, how to determine if it's a deal or it's not a deal. So there's kind of a vast library of content there, uh, you know, uh, of going through deals. So that lear- that shows you how to actually evaluate these properties and determine if it's a deal or not. So I think that's one of the best skills that you can get if you're thinking about going into this business. And obviously we've got programs to help people if they are looking to do more than just go through the self-study course as well. And that's, that's, con- uh, that's contained in the uh, land conquest community. So, uh, and then if you're looking, uh, if you're on Instagram or TikTok, um, it, the, it's at partner with Pete is the, the name there and partner with is the site, if you've got a, a deal, you can submit it there and I will take a look and see if we can partner on that. Pete, my man, I appreciate it. And uh, so that you have phenomenal resources out there as well. And I like that idea, like sharing the the monthly income, because I'm sure outside of sharing what most people probably want to know, uh, you know, how, how much money did Pete make and his business make? In reality, you're giving them what they uh, what they need in terms of probably sharing the results, progress, and issues of being able to get to that profit, right? And sharing the the, the real uh, headaches, if you will, or maybe just, hey, this is how this deal was a home run. This is what we did very, very well this month in this particular deal or in this particular deal for X amount of months. So good stuff, man. If you need anything from my end, if there's any way that I can help you or my community can help you, let me know. We'll stay connected. And uh, I personally definitely going to dive into a little bit more of what you have out there uh, and, and yeah, really appreciate, appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks Pete.